0: Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions and their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. So, once again, I'm reading some of my older writing. This one is Satanism, Christmas, and the Birth of Christ Jesus. And, unfortunately, the timeline I've got going with the podcast means that this one is going to be a little bit out of season. If I've got my timing right... This will be going up September 11th, well shy of the Christmas season. This was the first thing I wrote that took off at all. At the time, I was publishing my essays both on my own website, satanistreadsthebible.com, and reblogging on Medium. Between the two, I was getting readership in the single digits. And then this one got up into the hundreds. It seems Medium's curation services had picked up on it and distributed it. I now exceed those numbers on my own website on a daily basis, and the podcast is rapidly catching up, and I've since stopped reblogging on Medium because my writings, while meeting all of their guidelines for curation and distribution and definitely exceeding some of their curated works in terms of quality, never got picked up beyond that one time, and what if my work still remains on Medium still only gets readers in the single digits? But it was the first sign that what I was doing might catch on and find an audience, so it was very exciting. News for the podcast. I don't know if I've mentioned this in previous podcasts already, but I'm ditching the album and book recommendation segments. My musical preferences are pretty niche and might not be of interest to the broader audience I'm aiming for for this project, and I figure I talk about books enough in the podcast itself. If you absolutely do not want to see these go, send me an email at asatanistreadsthebible at gmail.com and let me know, and I'll revisit that decision. I'd like to replace those segments with something else, and my current idea is to do something along the lines of a short, satanic sermon—a segment where I can take all the theoretical and abstract content that I talk about and turn it into something useful and practical for everyday life. Still working out the details, send me an email or a podcast voice message and let me know what you think. News in the world of religion, according to CNN, archaeologists have unearthed a burial site in Peru containing the remains of 250 children and 40 adults, all of whom were killed in ritual sacrifice by the Chimu civilization in northern Peru sometime between the 13th and 15th centuries. Whether they were killed all at once or over a period of time is unclear from the article, but the hypothesis is that they were offered up by way of mitigating certain weather patterns or natural disasters. Sacrifice is one of the most interesting aspects of religion for me, especially with regards to how it has changed over the millennia. While this is a particularly large finding, human sacrifice was once common in the world. Now, even animal sacrifice is quite rare. What changed? Georges Bataille has some thoughts on the matter that I'll get to whenever I do the third part of my Faith and Sacrifice series, but I'd also like to do something like a genealogy of sacrifice to examine its roots and origins and how and why it's changed. And now this week's reading, Satanism, Christmas, and the Birth of Christ Jesus. I despise Christmas. For a duration fast approaching an entire sixth of the year, the worst aspects of capitalism, religion, music, and human social culture combine and worm their way into individual lives in a way that cannot be avoided if one wishes to participate in society at all and all under the auspices of a holiday for a religion that is not mine, but that nevertheless infuriates me because of the degree to which it's been appropriated and corrupted. It's a striking example of the way the hegemon cannibalizes what it ostensibly holds sacred and distorts the meaning of what it claims are the foundations of truth so as to serve its own ends. And given all this, it should come as no surprise that what is said of the birth of the Christian Savior by the hegemon, and what is actually said of this in the Bible— do not neatly correspond. I think most of the likely readership of these writings knows that December 25th is not the actual date of the birth of Jesus. The actual date has been lost to time, and it was likely that December 25th was selected because of its correlation with the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, after which the days grow longer. This has been a special symbolic relevance to pagan religions. On the solstice, the sun is reborn and grows in strength in the world. For Jesus, who is in many places compared to the sun or to light, which correlates Jesus with Lucifer in my interpretation, and whose resurrection is central to the religion, a date close to the solstice seems a fitting birthday, and certainly coinciding holidays would have made the transition from paganism to Christianity easier. Turning to the biblical accounts of the event upon which the holiday is founded— I've mentioned elsewhere, specifically in Satan the Accuser and the Temptation of Christ in the Wilderness, that three of the canonical Gospels give similar, largely biographical accounts of Jesus. Given the timeline, it must have been true that none of the four authors of the Gospels had encountered Jesus directly. All that came to them was at least second-hand, and all that has come to us in English is at least secondhand from that. For what reason did these four—and possibly many others, as in the Apocrypha and the Nag Hammadi scriptures, converge on Jesus as the Messiah of whom they believed prophecy had spoken. All of the four canonical Gospels spoke of Jesus in different ways, emphasizing different things and the non-canonical scriptures in more ways still. Luke's Gospel has the most elaborate narrative of the birth of Jesus, first prefacing that event with the prophecies of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus, a prophetic encounter between Mary and her friend Elizabeth, the actual birth of John the Baptist, and more prophecy. Then on to the actual events of central interest. The Roman emperor calls for an imperial census, and Joseph goes with his wife Mary to Bethlehem to be registered, because that's where his family is from. What seems especially odd in this account is that Joseph and Mary must then go to an inn. Joseph returns to Bethlehem because he has family ties there but no one who would take him and his very pregnant wife into their home. In any case, the child Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, and there are many signs, importance, and voices from heaven. Matthew tells the well-known tale in more general terms. Joseph and Mary were engaged, but not yet married, and Mary, allegedly a virgin, became pregnant. An angel of God appeared to Joseph, directly to Mary in Mark's gospel, Telling him that all was well and that he should still take Mary as his wife and that their son will be the Messiah spoken of in prophecy. The prophecy is quoted directly Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 of the New Revised Standard Version. That's as per Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophecy in the Old Testament to which the passage is referring. Quoting, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and she'll bear a son and she'll name him Emmanuel. It seems that something has been lost in the translation between the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament. There is no mention of a virgin birth in this prophecy nor in any other concerning the coming Messiah. This is evidence to the authors of the Gospels or their sources having adapted the account to fit their own purposes. They misunderstood the prophecy as requiring a virgin birth, and so wrote that into the narrative, or others did, and this was the account that the authors of the Gospels then heard and documented. Uh, Virgin is the translation of Alma in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, with which the authors of the Gospels would have been familiar. But the new Revised Standard Version differs here in a matter which is central to the religion. Indeed, it seems this is a point of contention. There's a Wikipedia page on Isaiah 714, and it describes a schism between religious factions over the translation thereof. In 1952, the Revised Standard Edition, ancestor to the primary translation that I've been using, was published and featured the translation of Alma as Young Woman. As this denies a central tenet of the faith— It can understandably be seen as problematic. It remains even in the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, section 2, chapter 3, article 3. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary. It is also vital to Christians that the historical Jesus have fulfilled prophecy. That prophecy was not actually there. This seems a good place to remark on the nature of contradictions in the Bible, some of which are central to my argument of Satan the Accuser and the Dialectic of God, and some of which are either simple mistakes or evidence of the hegemon's intentional deceit. How does one determine which is which? The distinction is between intertextual contradictions—contradictions contradictions between different texts of the Bible—and intratextual contradictions—those which occur within the same text, from chapter to chapter, from verse to verse, or even within the same verse. The above are intertextual, occurring between the Old Testament and the New, separated by language in approximately 900 years, and clearly the result of somebody having mistranslated a word. And as to what the authors of the Gospel said, I can come to no other conclusion but that someone was spinning a tale to fit a pre-existing narrative. But that's to our benefit. That lie has revealed something about the text that we can use to get closer to the truth. Mark's Gospel doesn't mention the virgin birth or the childhood of Jesus in any way, but given that these accounts were written half a century after the events they describe, during a time when the methods and resources for forensic history were nothing like they are now, some biographical inaccuracies are entirely to be expected, and that's assuming that all of the authors were pure in their intent to make an accurate reckoning of the historical events that had transpired. Indeed, little of the purely biographical accounts are to be trusted as historical documents, but I am far more interested in the mystical content, which is contained mostly within John's Gospel. In other words, what the authors of the four Gospels said about Jesus is far more interesting to me than whatever this historical Jesus said or did not say, did or did not do, or indeed what Jesus was or wasn't. Much of what is written in Mark's Gospel, in particular, seems in stark contradiction to the beliefs and behaviors of the modern Christian community. Quoting here, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And yet, John Allen Chow would risk committing genocide by infectious disease in order to tell a sovereign people that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to pause real quick here. First, to mention that at the time I had published this essay, there had been a recent event in the news. A Christian missionary named John Allen Chow had traveled to the uh, Sentinel Islands in India, off the coast of India, uh, where there lives a tribe of uncontacted peoples. His intent was to minister to them. Uh, being that these people had been very isolated for their entire history, they may not have had the same immunities that people living on the mainland had. So in order to tell these Sovereign people that Jesus was the Messiah, John Allen Chow, risked killing all of them, which seems very much in stark contrast to what Jesus was teaching in this gospel. And I'm going to pause for a quick break to talk support because I need your help to keep doing this and keep making it at least as awesome as this episode or even better. Patreon is the best way to do that. Patreon.com slash a Satanist reads the Bible. At the very least, stop by SatanistReadsTheBible.com and sign up for my mailing list so that you'll keep apprised of new episodes, because I think that if you follow my work long enough, you'll find that it's worth a contribution. And for those of you who are already supporting, it means a great deal to me. Thank you. Okay, back to Satanism, Christmas, and the birth of Christ Jesus. The author called Mark writes that Jesus knew that he was the Messiah, but that he had wished to keep this a secret. This is not mentioned in the other two of the Synoptic Gospels, but Mark is quite clear about it. Pause real quick. I may have gotten that wrong. That may actually be mentioned in Matthew as well. Although, uh, if I remember correctly, Mark was a source for Matthew. Continuing on. Um what would be the reason for this I think that Mark must have intended that Jesus message be the subject of focus he must have recognized a necessity for his audience to recognize the divinity of Jesus else he would not have written of it at all but he also said Jesus wished that you did not know of his divinity John's gospel is markedly different from the synoptic gospels focusing on theology and prophecy John speaks of the origin of Jesus in abstract poetic terms quoting In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things come into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was in the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Standing in stark contrast to the straightforward narrative prose of the other Gospels, the poetic language here is both striking and enigmatic. Word here in the Greek is logos. This is a unique appellation. Though logos appears elsewhere in the Bible, nowhere else is God spoken of in this way. Wiktionary gives five definitions for logos from the ancient Greek. One, that which is said, word, sentence, speech, story, debate, utterance. Two, that which is thought, reason, consideration, computation, reckoning. Three, an account, explanation, or narrative. Four, subject matter. Five, Christianity, the word or wisdom of God identified with Jesus in the New Testament. All of these meanings reveal nuances in the passage. In the beginning was the word, the speech, the story, the debate, the reason, the reckoning, the explanation, the narrative. Debate is of particular interest to me in my notions of the dialectic of God as are reckoning, explanation, and narrative. So we could interpret the above passage into something like the following. In the beginning was the story. God was telling the story, and God was the story that was being told. In the philosophy of ancient Greece, in whose language this passage is written, Logos is the ordering principle of the cosmos, thus reason as a possible translation. Thus, in the beginning was reason. Reason came from God, and God came from reason. One can't but take from any one of these anything but that God and narrative are consubstantial, that God and reason are consubstantial. Admittedly, it really does nothing except to push the horizon of understanding one step further back, but one step is at least something. It's a horizon that gives us new light from the glare that was our prior horizon. Logos is an especially polysemous and multiplexed word from ancient Greek to English. The word has several senses, none of which seem to be conveyed by any one English word, but which rather each encompass several. The point is, the anonymous author of this document, who has been named John, writing in ancient Greek and understanding its nuances, used this particular word to describe their semiotic understanding of the nature of God, and that correlates with something that was of significance to the philosophy of that language and age, something we may only be very inadequately prepared to approach by translating logos into just a single word. I remember a time in my life when a friend of my family had committed suicide. He was a devout Christian of the Protestant tradition, and from what little evidence I've been able to gather about his death, he had been trying to address a period of depression with medication. His widow believed that it was that very medication, whether through its side effects or implications, that had driven him to this act. At the reception for his funeral, I overheard the widow rehearsing part of her speech with her pregnant daughter and her son. This was the very passage she cited, though from the King James Version. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I have to apologize here if I've been in the past dismissive of the King James Version of the Bible. For all that this may be a corruption of the original text, it still reveals the translator's understanding— And in that sense, it is remarkable. It's really quite beautiful as well. My point is, within that moment, I was privileged to, though inconspicuously, an intimate knowledge of what they considered sacred. Surely, these three people were privileged to an intimate experience of death. That noble and honorable mainstay in their lives had ended his own, thus terminating what they had seen as unending, or, at the least, of a duration that would match or supersede their own. And in this realization they had turned to God, saying only that there was some grand correlation of things to which they are contingent, and that they recognized his death in the face of that. In the face of the infinite, it seems we can always find at least one greater duration, and I, eavesdropping, overheard them speaking of the one that they had found. And if I can say that there is anything at all an ending, I can at least say that I have found God. In God I have found Satan, and I have never had such belief in my life as I have had in Satan. At the same time, having known these people for my entire life, I knew that they were probably all Trump voters, young earth creationists, people who I believe are completely missing the point. Indirectly, but somehow deliberately through their choices, they have hurt or intended to hurt people that I love, and I find it difficult to forgive them for this. And yet, I cannot deny that they were, in that moment that I secretly witnessed, a party to answers to questions that I have been asking my entire life. They receive the metaphors therefrom and have mistaken these signs for their reference and so vote an avowed rapist into office, for example. And I think that what hurts me the most of all this is that they have weaponized mysticism, turned even that into a weapon against us. Their mystical experiences are as real as mine, as ineffable and as noetic as mine. When I hear them speak of the Word of God, I hear something that reflects me like a mirror something that I have experienced through what is fundamental to the ground of my being. And they have shattered this mirror and pushed its shards up against my throat. Let us continue with the analysis of the passage, keeping the broadest possible understandings of Logos in mind. The above is another passage in the text referring to the beginning of creation, the first being the opening chapters of Genesis, and again we find a depth of semiotic meaning revealed by the intratextual contradictions— God is with Logos, and God is Logos. We find even more revelations of this nature in the writing of St. Ignatius. Quoting, No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. There is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable. Even Jesus Christ our Lord. That's from the Epistle of Ignatius to the Ephesians from the first century, and also from Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria. He indeed assumed humanity that we might become God. He manifested himself by means of a body in order that we might perceive the mind of the Unseen Father. That's from the incarnation of the Word of God from the fourth century of the Common Era. Generally, it can be assumed that statements like this refer specifically and uniquely to Jesus Christ. But, If we see the world as consubstantial with the divine, then it must be that, as humans come to know themselves through the dialectic, so does God come to know themselves. If we are made in the image of God and we must come to know ourselves, then as above, so below. Jesus is, then, exemplary in this fashion rather than unique. To such a degree as logos can be translated as debate, to which dialectic is closely related, the nature of God is the coming into awareness of the self, the instrument of which is Satan the accuser, and the synthesis of which is Jesus Christ. Thus we are like Satan in that we seek to know ourselves and we are like Jesus to such a degree as we are self-knowing. And indeed we see correlations between Jesus and light, in the above passage and in Genesis, which is Satan, the first created. Lucifer means light-bearer and early hymns refer to Jesus as Lucifer. As well, we see Jesus correlated with life, which is dynamic, and thus in turn correlated with evil, as per William Blake. And Jesus certainly stood in opposition to the hegemon of his day. He was a threat to the status quo, to the power of the priesthood, and to the colonial Roman government. Knowing this, we are free to see in ourselves what Athanasius saw in Jesus alone and know that there is some truth to it. I have heard fundamentalists speak of the corruption and sinful nature of the body, but through the body we experience all things, including such things as scripture, the interpretation of scripture, and personal experiences of the sacred. So what is left to us to know of God if we cannot know of God through our own bodies? Fundamentalist proclamations against the body are at least consistent in that regard. The body is the manifestation of divine process which seeks to know itself, and is therefore of Satan the accuser. But if we are made in the image of God, then as we come to know our own minds, and so do we come to perceive the mind of the unseen father. As above, so below. I've seen some disputes of the late-authorship hypothesis of the Gospels, the hypothesis that the four canonical Gospels were written somewhere in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries, rather than in the early 1st century, soon after the crucifixion of Jesus. I haven't seen any such refutations that have amounted to anything substantial, but the fact remains that, despite widespread acknowledgement even among Christian scholars, a professor of theology, Femi Perkins, as one example, Uh, of a late authorship, and despite a dearth of evidence, some still believe in the early authorship hypothesis. I also got one comment posted on the story on Medium and since deleted, affirming Christmas as the actual date of the birth of Jesus, again, despite a dearth of evidence, and then there's the whole matter of Isaiah 7.14 and the word Alma, young woman, which was translated in the Septuagint as virgin. Actually, minor correction here. Apparently, the Greek word Parthenos from the Septuagint actually does mean young woman, but later, by the first century, had come to mean virgin, but that's just further evidence in favor of virgin being a mistranslation. The Gospel of Matthew spends a great deal of time describing the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, but given the mistranslation, it's clear that this was an attempt to fit history to a narrative rather than fitting a narrative to history. This is by no means a death knell for Christianity, but it is certainly problematic for certain realist and historically literalist interpretations of the Gospels. But there are those who continue to insist on the translation as virgin, not because they couldn't have Christianity without it, but because the correct translation might require their Christianity to change. What are we to make of a belief system that doesn't change as new information comes to light? I would think the Christians who would want to be true to the Bible would want to be true as well to its problems and to the questions and doubts it raises. Short of that, I think that one would be fetishizing the Bible rather than venerating it. Up next, mainly what I've been doing recently is studying the Gospels, and most of that work has been towards the project I'm doing with a local pastor looking into the ethics of Jesus via the Gospels. I'm not sure if that's going to turn into next week's piece or if I'm going to do something else, I've also been working on a critique of another podcast, that being the podcast of megachurch pastor Joel Osteen, so that's a possibility as well. But I know what will be going up next Wednesday, Cain Murders Abel, which is where I really think I hit my stride with regards to my early work. Thank you so much for joining me today and being part of my audience. Always on